this is a uh, combination message, if you will, that uh, we're continuing our study of the book of Mark. But as we go through the book of Mark, our annual theme of called is also coming into play at the exact same time. And so we, uh, in our theme this year, have been talking about our purpose, who we are, why we are here, and why we do things. And you'll see that come out very strongly in this text in describing who we are and what we are about and what purpose and mission that God has given to us. This scene in Mark 2 should now be familiar. We have seen this with Jesus pretty often now that as soon as Jesus is known to be somewhere, there is a great crowd that begins to swarm Him and begin to follow Him. You see that happening again in verse 13 that we have that Jesus goes out beside the Sea of Galilee and all the crowd was coming to Him. So here we have this picture of every time Jesus goes somewhere, here is all the people and notice every time what Jesus is doing. Verse 13 goes on to say, Jesus starts teaching We saw that that's our theme of Mark's gospel in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus says he's come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so this is exactly what he does at every opportunity. Here is Jesus preaching this good news, proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming his kingship, and thus Jesus does that. We have then something that also is familiar in verse 14 as he's passing by the sea, which is a little bit reminding us of what happened when Jesus passed by the sea last time. He encountered two guys named Simon and Andrew and said, uh, follow me. And then as he passed a little further on that sea, he saw James and John and said, follow me. And now in verse 14, as he passed by the sea, here is Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and immediately followed him. The scene then suddenly shifts in verse 15. He's now at the dining room table and is now with Levi in his house. And not only is Jesus then in the house with Levi, this tax collector, but there are other tax collectors and other people who have filled this house. Verse 15, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. Again, when you read reclining, I know that's a cultural reference to we don't lay down while we eat, uh, but tables back then were low and you recline by having your head resting on your left hand so that your right hand was free to grab the food that was put on the table with your feet then behind you. So that's why they're reclining at table. Don't think of lazy boys and throwing that thing in drive and you know you're all right. Uh, you, you laid on the floor with pillows essentially uh, and you would then eat with your right hand. And so notice who's there. Jesus, Levi, many tax collectors and sinners are also in this room. And notice Mark wants to tell you something in particular about this group. Not only is it, well, it's just tax collectors and sinners, but verse 15 says, these are the ones that are following Him. These are the ones who are pursuing Jesus. These are the ones who are listening to the message. These are the ones, then that's why they're in the room, because they're hearing Him and following Him. Now, to understand a little bit about what's going to happen next, we need to get a little bit of a sense of what being a tax collector was all about. Particularly as we look at Levi, as it says there in verse 14, that he's in a tax booth. It is highly likely, since we are on this road near the sea, 
that this tax booth would be one where taxes to the Roman Empire would be paid in regards to the commerce that was passing by. Very likely fish that was coming out of the sea. And so there would be taxes that would be paid on that. It'd be it's not too different than how if we want to get on the turnpike and you got to pay as you come into various cities and various stops. Well, the Roman Empire had the same thing. As you would travel on their roads, there would be these stop points along the way and you would have to pay your taxes based on the commerce you're carrying with you. This is Levi's job. But these tax collectors were, were absolutely hated. And it's hard for us to really get in touch with the hatred that existed for these tax collectors. It is nowhere near our disdain for the IRS or for the various uh, taxes that we have to pay because we have an awareness that, okay, we're going to have to pay these things and we, we may not like it. But that's not the reason why they didn't like tax collectors. Tax collectors were universally despised because they had an enormous reputation for dishonesty. They had exorbitant surcharges and they were duplicitous because they were considered working for oppressive rulers while at the same time being a local among themselves. They were hated because they would then choose to collect money over and above what could have been typically taken on that. That's how the tax collector at a toll booth would have made their money is they would buy out this right to be the tax collector at this booth and the Roman Empire would say okay every month or two you whatever the time frame would be you have to pay us $100,000 to have this toll booth okay you pay it up front then as the worker of, of that area you could then decide what you were going to charge to make enough to pay the Roman Empire plus pay yourself as well and so the toll and the taxes fluctuated. Imagine driving the turnpike every day and not knowing what you're going to pay every time you hit one. Because it depended upon who the guy was that day who was behind the toll booth. That's what you're dealing with. Is You are dealing with crooks. You are dealing with dishonest people. Be dealing with people who are trying to make as much money for themselves as possible. And are going way beyond what the baseline was of what the government required for that tax. And so they are a despised people. In fact, the Mishnah, which is a recorded writings of what was orally handed down by the Jewish people in prior generations. They said this. Mishnah said, you were prohibited from receiving alms and donations from a tax collector at his office since the money was presumed to have been gained illegally. They wouldn't even take their money. They said, you know what, we know that it's going to be corrupt. We know that it's going to be dishonest money, and so we will not receive it. If a tax collector entered a house, all that was in the house became unclean. They just said straight out, tax collectors were so wicked, so evil, so filthy, so dishonest. If one came into your house, you would have to purify everything in the house once they left because it all just became unclean by their, by their very presence. The rabbis went so far as to say it was permissible to lie to a tax collector so that you could protect your own property. And we have no idea how bad it was, how hated they are. The tax collectors are the villains. 
Nobody likes them. They are dishonest. They are cheats. They are liars. They are terrible individuals. And with that in mind, Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee, sees Levi there doing his job and running one of those toll booths there and says, hey, Levi, follow me. And he gets up and follows him. And then, of all things, verse 15 tells us, Jesus is in the house of the tax collector and Levi's good friends, a bunch of other tax collectors and notorious sinners are all in this house and they're dining together. This leads to the conflict that we see then in verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, everybody is going, you have got to be kidding me. These are the worst of the worst. And when you read sinners, don't think like sinners, like, okay, yes, we're all sinners before God. That's not what that's getting at. These are notorious sinners. These are people that everybody in the region, the community would know, that's a bad person. That's a terrible individual. They've done bad things and I know it and everybody knows it. And so you have the tax collectors who are renowned for their dishonesty, for their cheating, for their lying, for their deception, for their terrible reputation, and a bunch of Notorious sinners that everybody knows is breaking God's law. And Jesus is sitting with them eating. And the scribes go, why is he eating with these people? Why would you possibly eat with these people? Jesus, you shouldn't be touching them with a 10-foot pole. You shouldn't be in that house. God might strike the house down and make it fall on all of those sinners. Why would you be in that house? What are you doing in there spending time with them? And Jesus' answer is extremely profound and highly instructive in describing who God is and describing who we are. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is an interesting picture that is given to us that Jesus begins with. It's a simple proverb. It was a common proverb in the first century that people use. That the sick are the ones in need of a doctor. Well, people don't need physicians. It's something that we understand even ourselves. And it can be confusing to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because you can read this and think, well, is he saying that the scribes and the Pharisees are the righteous and these people in the room that are tax collectors and sinners, well, they're the unspiritual, they are the sick, they are the sinners. And we know that doesn't jive with anything in the New Testament. All of the purpose of God's law found in the law of Moses was to show 
that everybody is condemned under the law. There's no such thing before God as someone who is righteous. The message over and over again of scriptures is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of my favorite texts, Romans 3, from verse 9 to verse 18, there, there is none righteous, no, not one, and then just describes their throats are empty graves and their tongues are lying vipers and just on and on he goes and describing the sinfulness of humanity. There's none that stand righteous before God. What is the point that Jesus is getting at to say here, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick? When do you go to a doctor? If you're like me, I have to be near dead. (laughs) I have to pretty much go... There is no hope for me to be well on my own. If there is any way I think I'm going to pull it off and be fine, then I'm not going to see a doctor. There are essentially two reasons why you go to a doctor. Number one, you realize you are sick, but that's not all. And realize you need intervention. Those are the two reasons. You have to know you're sick, and you have to know you can't fix it yourself. You need intervention. That is what Jesus is playing upon in this proverb that he uses to them. I've come to the sick. I've come to the ones who know that they are sick and recognize that they need intervention. And you can just imagine what these scribes are thinking. Why would you be around these people? Why would you eat with them? Why would you spend time with them? And the point that Jesus is laying out is Jesus has come to people who recognize that they are sick. Who recognize that there is something wrong. That they admit that they are sick and are in need of treatment. That is the whole idea of the concept of the doctor. I don't go to a doctor if I don't think I'm sick. And I don't go to a doctor if I can handle it myself. That's the only time I go to the doctor is I know I'm sick and I know I need help. That's the only time. This is the concept that Jesus wants us to understand in getting at this. Now, notice how he plays this into that second sentence. I came not to call the righteous... But sinners, I didn't come for the people who think they're fine. So it's one of the things that Jesus is going to deal with over and over again in his life that you read about in all of the gospel accounts. Is ultimately what is the problem with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, all the people who come against Jesus? They don't think they're sick. They think they're righteous. They think they're fine. They have no need for what Jesus has to offer. They're doing perfectly fine on their own. That's why every discussion with them always turns into a discussion of, look at all the good things I do. I'm fine. I have no need for a doctor. I'm righteous. I'm good. 
Look at all the good things that I've done. I've done them from my youth. What's the greatest commandment that I can do? How can I inherit eternal life? That's always revolving around the idea that I'm doing just fine. What's the one thing I should do to kind of throw it over the top? (laughs) I'm good though. I don't need a doctor. I'm not sick. And Jesus is putting his finger on this and saying, do you understand who the call of the gospel is going to? People who are lost and know it. People who are lost and know it. This is why he's with these people. This is why he's with notorious sinners and hated tax collectors, despised people that nobody in that in that area would ever want to be around. Is that Jesus is trying to communicate something that he has come to be the spiritual doctor and the only people who go to a spiritual doctor are those who know they are spiritually sick and need intervention. Just like a physical doctor. I've come for those so that they will come to me because they will be the ones that listen. You've experienced that. And I have too. So often what we try to do in our presentation of the gospel is that we look for people who we don't think need to make much of a change. They're pretty good people. They're pretty moral. They're not that bad. And have you ever noticed that most of the time when you do that, what is their response? I'm fine. I don't need that. Because we keep pre-sorting to people who don't see that they're sick. They look at their lives and say, I'm a good person. I don't do bad things. And those kinds of general justifications. Notice what Jesus is getting at is that the gospel is for sinners and the gospel is for sinners just as they are in that very condition that you don't have Jesus saying now, I will not go and teach these people until first all of you stop what you're doing and then I'll proclaim the gospel to you. So often we have a mentality of the gospel that is, okay, you need to get your life right. And then once you get your life right, you can come to Jesus. No. The message is come to Jesus and he will get your life right. But so often we want to flip it and pre-sort. Okay, who's going to get good enough for God so that you can follow Jesus? And notice Jesus is blowing that up because that's exactly what the scribes would do. Jesus, you need to be with who? The good, moral, upright people. Don't be with scoundrels. These tax collectors are liars and cheats. They're swindling people. They're defrauding them of their money. They're so wicked, the Mishnah said, go ahead and lie to them. They're that terrible. Jesus is eating a meal with them. And verse 15 indicates they're the ones following him right now. What Jesus clearly understands that the scribes do not understand is that it is the gospel that is the cause for life transformation. 
If the message is not fix your life first, then hear the gospel, but hear the gospel because that will change your life. It will change who you are. That's the basis of the life transformation. And I want you to even kind of notice it a little bit further and how it's presented to us here. Not only is he with the tax collectors and the sinners, and he's not just standing there lobbing holy hand grenades at them, repent before it's too late. He's befriended them. It's, it's amazing what he's doing as he's spending time with them. So much so that the scribes cannot begin to understand how he could do that. You know, the scribes would have had no problem if Jesus would have walked in those doors and said, you know what, you all are going to hell because you're a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. They'd have been like, yep, that's right, preach all of them. That's not what he's doing. He's reclining at table. He's in their house. He's befriended them. He's part of their lives. They're following him. They're the many of who are following him is what verse 15 says. That's why the scribes are just cannot understand what Jesus is doing. But I want you to see that Jesus is describing for us what his kingdom and what his message is all about. The kingdom is the kingdom for outcasts. The kingdom is the kingdom for sinners. The kingdom is essentially consisting of people who know that they are spiritually sick and are looking for treatment. This is who belongs to Jesus. These are the ones who belong in this kingdom. Are people who are aware of their spiritual sickness and have come to Jesus for treatment. The kingdom is not for people who pretend to be their fine. Well, we're good. We don't need a doctor. We're not that bad. Our sins are so small, so minor, so insignificant. We only needed a couple drops of the blood of Jesus. Those people out there need gallons. We're not that bad. Notice what Jesus is trying to do is reverse the thinking here of what the kingdom is all about. The reason I'm with the tax collectors and sinners is because they understand their condition. Because they are the ones who know that I am the one who provides intervention. They are not walking around thinking that they are righteous, that they are fine, that they are okay. The kingdom was about restoring sinners to God. And you know what the Pharisees thought? The kingdom was contaminated by sinners. In fact, that's what that word Pharisee means. Is they isolated themselves. They were isolationists. Can't come near. You guys are all unholy and we are pious and proper and upright over here and we pray all the time and we do our all of our things. But you see them doing in the very scriptures. They're saying the kingdom can't be contaminated by sinners and Jesus saying the kingdom is open to sinners. I'm here to restore sinners. That's exactly who I've come to call. This is the essence of the gospel message is that self-confessed sinners are the ones who are in the kingdom of God. And if we are shocked by that, remember how the Sermon on the Mount began. First words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Those who understand who they are are the ones who will be in the kingdom. That's why Jesus would always say, you see all the prostitutes and sinners and Gentiles and tax collectors all coming in. And who's not coming in? All the religious leaders and Pharisees and teachers. And you tell them that all the time. They're coming in and you're being thrust out. You're the first and you're out. You're last and the last. They're the ones coming in. They're first. It is such an important message that is being given to us. And here's what Jesus is proclaiming to these scribes. And I hope that you will see this in our series on Mark over and over again. Is that one of Mark's key themes is that the self-righteous are the ones who refuse to see the need that Jesus, the one who has shown all authority to give forgiveness, they will not receive it. Why? Because they think they're fine. Because they think they're okay. Friends, this is the scandal of the gospel. This is what puts religion on its head. This is the complete inversion of thinking when it comes to the kingdom of God. The scandal of the gospel is that forgiveness is not based on how good you are. But it is how much you understand who you are before God. Forgiveness is not based on how good you are. Even if that guy was telling the truth, I have kept all the law since my youth. Okay, I say no, but let's say he's right and he really had up to that point. Amazing fellow. Does Jesus turn around and go, well, you certainly get to come in because look at how good you are. No. He immediately shows him his deficit and sends him away. Forgiveness is not based on how good we are. Listen to Paul, how Paul says it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save the righteous of which I am the foremost. That's how we think of Paul. Righteous Paul. He is amazing. He is Superman apostle. Look at all the things he does. What's Paul say? This saying is trustworthy and worthy of your full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. That's who Jesus has come to save. Not people who think they are righteous. Not people who think they are good. Not people who think they are good enough. That Jesus has come to save those who understand their spiritual condition before God. And here is Paul saying those very words. He understands it before anybody else does. As he always says, I'm the foremost. I'm the foremost. So often we put that on him and say, well, it's because he was was persecuting Christians. True, but this is how Every Christian should think. I understand my sin before God. And if we ever think that we are doing just fine spiritually, then we are the ones who are self-righteous and do not belong to the kingdom of God either. 
We're just like these scribes and Pharisees. I'm doing just fine. And those people out there, they are the wretched ones. And we better hurry up and save them. But I'm doing okay. Then you're out. That's what Jesus is teaching right here. Jesus over and over again will tell these righteous leaders, you're out. Tax collectors and notorious sinners are in. Why? Because they understand who they are before God and admit their sin. Think about how Luke recorded that very idea. He speaks of a Pharisee and a tax collector with great intention. Here's your two polar opposites. The Pharisee who stands on the street corner in front of everybody and says, I thank my God that I am not like all the filthy trash out there in the world who is doing such horrible things before God and certainly not like this tax collector right here. I am wonderful before God. And what does the tax collector do? He will not raise his eyes, but simply utters, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one does Jesus approve of? The one who will not lift his eyes, but understands his spiritual need. He understands his deficit before God and understands that he needs a Savior. The reason we're forgiven is because we realize the horror of our sins. We realize the gravity of our sins. We realize the depth of our sins. These are the ones that Jesus has come to rescue. These are the ones that Jesus has come to save. It is not because of how good we are. What Jesus does here has such shock value. But we can test ourselves on that kind of thinking. Have you and I ever seen somebody walk through the door and your first thought was, what is that person doing here? That betrays the thinking. They come in and we go, oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) That's exactly what we're here for is there is not a single self-confessed sinner that doesn't belong in the building. Every person who is looking to solve their sin problem, who is seeking the Savior, who understands the depth of their sins, that's exactly what we are here for. There is not a single sinner that does not belong. And so often we want to, okay, who are the ones who only come in in suits and ties and look cleaned up and, you know, their worst sin is that they lied today. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is speaking so strongly here in picturing what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of God. It is the individual who is aware of his sin who does not rely upon His goodness, but simply says before God, I need Your mercy. In fact, 
If you think about the question for a minute that the scribes pose at the end of verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That betrays something, doesn't it? Doesn't that betray a spiritual arrogance? It betrays a spiritual arrogance. Why would you be with those people? You should be with good people. We can't fall into that trap and fall into that way of thinking. Let me bring this into, I think, what is the big concept here that Jesus is intending. I believe it is the purpose of the law of Moses. I believe it is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount when we went through it. I hit this theme nearly every single lesson in our Sermon on the Mount series. It is the message of the New Testament. It is the message of God. When you are broken by your sins to such a degree that you realize you cannot be good enough or be what God has called you to be, that is exactly where God wants you to be. What's so sad is the gospel message has been distorted so that would that would read so when you're broken by your sins and you can't be good enough quit go home you're not good enough you don't live up to the standard the reason God gave his laws is so that you would see how deficient you are before God and you need a savior that's why he gave them Where the law increased, what increased all the more according to Romans 5 and pretty much all the Old Testament when you study it? Sin. Sin increases with law. Why would you do that? To understand what you need before God. When we are broken by our sins, when we are crushed by what we have done, that's exactly where God wants you to be. The last thing He wants you to do is to commit your sin and go, oh, well, at least I'm not as bad as what those others are doing. That's not a big deal. It's not as bad as those other sins. My neighbor's way worse. I know somebody in the pews is doing way worse stuff than me. So I'm okay. That's the last thing you're supposed to do. God is putting you exactly where He wants you to be in humility before the law of God so that you will say, all that I need from God is grace and mercy and I have nothing to offer. All the good things that I've done are insufficient before you. I cannot save myself. I cannot rescue myself. It doesn't matter how good I've been. That's not enough. My sins are too great. The whole message of the law is commit one sin. And you're under condemnation of all of it. And you're in need of rescue. And when we try this being good enough, that is a great danger. Because attempting to be good enough leads to self-righteousness. As soon as I try to put the kingdom back into my court and say, well, I'm going to be good enough. Well, you know what that leads to? How are you going to define being good enough? Well, I'm doing better than him. And I'm doing better than her. And so I mean, I'm good. And that one and that one. So I'm pretty, that's exactly the wrong road to go to. 
So often that's the path we take is I'm going to try to be good enough. The path that we take must be the path of Luke 7. I love that scene. Here is the sinful woman who comes into the room. Another scene of reclining at table. Simon the Pharisee. Here comes this notorious sinful woman into the room. And Simon says, if this man were a prophet and we would know what sort of woman that was, that you'd be letting her touch him. She has spiritual cooties and you should be far away from that woman. Well, we laugh, but we do that, don't we? We do that. All them out there, they're those kind of people. Jesus tells a story, tells a wonderful parable about One guy being forgiven what seems to be a little bit, and one guy forgiven a ton, and neither could repay the debt. Which one will love him more? I suppose. (laughs) The one who was forgiven more. Do you remember how that ends? The more we see how much we are forgiven is the more that we will love the Lord. Why is she doing what she's doing? Why is she weeping profusely and wiping his feet and doing all that? Well, the Pharisee sits there cross-armed and says, what kind of man or woman is this? Why is she doing what she's doing? Because she is fully aware of her sin before God. And Simon sits back and goes, I don't need much. I'm a good person. I'm good enough. Friends, we've got to be so careful about our thought processes, about what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of God. And this idea of called and who we are and what is the call of the kingdom. The kingdom is for outcasts. The kingdom is for sinners. The kingdom is for people who admit their sin. They know that they are sick and that they need a spiritual doctor to intervene. That's who the kingdom is for. The kingdom does not belong to people who think that they are good enough, not sick enough, that they don't need a doctor, and that their deeds are okay. We're good enough. Those don't belong to the kingdom of God. It is a warning to us to never ever stop being broken by sin. The moment we take our sins lightly, we take them for granted. They're not that bad. I did pretty good today. I'm a pretty good person is the moment we are walking out the doors of the kingdom of God. Because we are moving our salvation upon ourselves. I'm not that bad. And the kingdom doesn't belong to such. The kingdom belongs to people who know they are sinful, who know they have rebelled against God's law, and that they need a merciful Savior to intervene on their behalf. That there's no amount of good things they can do to be good enough. The only way for this problem to be resolved is for Jesus to be merciful and to save them. That's who the kingdom is for. And may we never forget it. May we never forget that we are the spiritual hospital 
with the doors open to the spiritually sick so that anyone will come in and confess their sin and we will rally to them and say, that's exactly where God wants you to be is to understand your sin and come to Him for forgiveness. That's how we come to Him. And friends, that's when transformation begins. When you see how much you're forgiven, now you'll start changing your life. Now you'll start walking away from sin. Now the transformation begins of no longer serving self and serving sin because you see what God has done for you. That's where transformation lies. I beg you this morning then to think about your situation before God. God is looking for people who do not think they're good enough. God is looking for people who do not rest upon their own righteousness. God is looking for people who do not stand on their own justice or we grew up in church, we were always in the pews, we're not as bad as whoever. God is looking for people who will not pick up their eyes to God because of their humility and by being broken by sins and simply want to say to God, God be merciful to me as sinner. Peter writes and says, the way you make that appeal for a pure, clean conscience is that you come to him in faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That it's not dependent upon us, but spend upon the mercy of God. And God extends to us, you can be saved. You can be forgiven if you'll come to him with that heart. Why don't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?